everyone, and welcome to the Vori's IP VIP podcast. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we're speaking with returning guest Tony Venturino, who's going to be discussing intellectual property licenses and technology agreements. If you're an inventor or with a company that works with and relies on IP licenses and agreements, this episode includes a lot of practical advice from a veteran attorney in the field. And now, here's my conversation with Tony. Today, I'm pleased to have uh, with us on the VIP podcast, our first returning guest, Tony Venturino. He's a partner in the Voorhees Washington DC office, and he's also a member of the Technology and Intellectual Property Group. Tony received his law degree from the George Washington University Law School and received both his master's and bachelor's degrees in chemical engineering from Manhattan College. Tony's also a frequent lecturer on US patent and trademark practice and currently serves as one of 12 directors on the Board of American Intellectual Property Law Association, AIPLA. Tony, welcome again to our podcast. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks, glad to be back. Well, great. Today, I, I've asked Tony to come onto the program, and uh, he's got a, a depth of knowledge on this topic. I'd like to to discuss and talk about licenses, and, licenses, and, and in particular, intellectual property licenses and technology agreements. So, Tony, to kick things off, uh, for those, I, I guess, just to get a broad overview of, of what we're going to talk about, when we talk about technology agreements, are we only talking about IP licensing, or, or what else might fall under this umbrella? There's confidentiality agreements. Those are typically with outsiders when you're evaluating their inventions and their trade secrets for possible in licensing. But um, that's sort of a preliminary agreement. Vendor supplier agreements, you do that all the time. You're buying products and working with someone and things can come up during working with those people that you wanna make sure if any IP gets generated, it's covered. Joint development and commercialization agreements and exclusive licenses and non-exclusive licenses. It's important to know the difference between the two. Co-promotion agreements, uh, employee agreements. Uh, if you're in a litigation, settlement agreements. And if you're opening a joint venture, a joint venture agreement. Also, you have to have, uh, when you have outside experts, you may be having contract research and development agreements as well as consulting agreements. And all these things will have IP provisions. Okay, so not all of it's intellectual property specific, but those of our listeners who might, um, you know, come into contact with any of these agreements will probably benefit from what we're about to talk talk about. That's right. So, great. So, well, well, let's start about the on the licensee side. Uh, what what are some common mistakes that a licensee could possibly make in, in any of these agreements? Usually, it has to do with the money, royalties paid when the license patent has expired. You're still paying the royalty. Royalties paid for technology you don't use. For example, patents that are covered by the license no longer cover the products you're making, but you're still paying the royalty. Uh, same thing can happen on the trademark side. Royalties that are under a trademark license, with it, you're not using the trademark anymore. It's kind of like paying for a gym membership you stopped using years ago. And another classic mistake is royalties paid at the wrong rate, either too high or too low. Right. So, so what's your suggestion? What's your advice to a licensee to, to track this? I mean, some of these people have several, I mean, lots of balls oh, juggling, lots. Lots, of, lots of things juggling. How, how do you keep track of that? Well, you've got to have someone designated to keep track of that. So it's got to be someone's responsibility and there should also be a backup person for that. So they both have responsibility. And then you probably have reminders in your calendar, whatever to check. You have a database set up where you know what the agreements are, you know what they say, and you periodically have a schedule for checking up with the other, uh, that you're doing the right thing. Right. Yeah, I, I, I get um, 
I'm, I'm hawkish when it comes to my credit card bills. And when I see recurring payments that we're not taking advantage of, uh, AKA gym memberships, uh, things along those lines, I, um, I, I'd like to change those. So yes, it's good to, to, to make sure you have some sort of a backup that's actually checking these things, making sure you're not paying money to uh, you know, royalties when you're, you're not getting any benefit out of it. Correct. All right, um, well, well, let's switch gears. Let, let's switch the tables here. What, what are some common mistakes that a licensor might make in some of these agreements? Well, big one is if the royalties if the royalties payments cease when they aren't supposed to, failure to notify the other side to say where's my money, that's a big one. You kind of forget to collect, so you need to monitor the royalty payments, and a lot of times they don't. You also have to monitor the payment to make sure it's the correct amount, and occasionally you'll have to uh, request an audit of the other side to enforce it. Another big one is staying in technical contact with the licensee. It's important to maintain really good communication, not only for getting the proper amount paid, but even getting them interested in continuing to use the technology that you're licensing to them. Is your advice for licensors kind of similar for licensees? You just need to be vigilant and, and you know calendar things and make sure somebody's on top of all this? Right, designate somebody so it's clear whose job it is to stay on top of all this. Yeah, don't want to be paying or don't want to be missing royalty payments for you know years on end where you should have been getting them. So it definitely can pay off to be yeah, under underpayments happen all the time. Sometimes it's also just a, a misunderstanding. And this is where the communication comes in is they don't think that a certain aspect of a product is covered, but it is and you should be getting money for it. But the licensee doesn't even know it. And sometimes they don't totally understand exactly what's covered and what's not by that patent. Yeah. All right. Well, well, for so for the listeners uh, that that are lawyers, for the, uh, attorneys here, what what's some practical practical advice that you would give to these lawyers that are working on technical agreements, such as a licensing agreement? Well, you need to know the business goals. What are we trying to get out of this deal? Why are we trying to do the deal? You also need to have a good handle on the applicable laws and know the available protection for that technology. For example, you may protect a process one way, you may protect a product another way. It's really helpful to keep a checklist of all the important clauses that you're gonna need for your agreement to make sure you don't miss something really important. And you wanna basically do this, those clauses will protect the client from foreseeable legal problems. So. Um, for example, if you need to have a litigation clause, who controls litigation, it's in there. If you need to have something on who controls patent prosecution, it's in there. You need to have an expiration date clause, it's in there. Uh, and also speak up if you see something going on that's not in the best interest of the company. Regardless of what maybe the negotiators want, you may see something going where you don't think this is such a great idea long term for, for your client. You have any examples of that? Well, what's an example of what's not in the best interest of your company, even though the executive or nego negotiator wants that? Depends how cynical you want to be as far as the uh, <laughs> scenarios on this one. It could be it's uh, you could have the negotiator basically just wants to have a series of deals done because they make a certain amount at the end of the year based on how many deals they do. And they may uh, get a little... Um, generous with their deals and make deals that are too generous towards the people they're making the deal with just to get a number in. Hmm. And in the long run, that's not good for the company, or it maybe looks like a great deal, but there aren't 
any safeguards for the for your company, your client. And it's great for a while, but when things start falling apart, you're left holding the bag. And for all we know, that negotiator is not even at the company anymore or has been promoted or might even be working for the other side now. Yeah, so, I mean, essentially, you just, um, you got to be vigilant. Uh, the lawyer needs to make sure, even though it it, it may uh, ruffle some feathers of the executive or the negotiator, you got to be vigilant. You got to zealously represent your client, it sounds like. And, and I've had that where... I've been in these deals in the room and I'm like, don't like what's happening. And sometimes you got to run it up the flagpole to a higher exec. Right. And meanwhile, you're, you're unfortunately you are ruffling some feathers. Hmm. You know. what, what about when, uh, when a lawyer comes across maybe provisions or, you know, uh, you know, stipulations that they're not too familiar with. Yeah. You gotta know when you're in over your head. So what you got to do is at that point, you realize I'm not familiar with this and you should track somebody down who would be to either take over or at least guide you through so you handle the situation correctly. And it could be something about the kind of contract it is, or it could simply be you don't know what the local law is. If it's a yeah. Texas provision and you're not a Texas lawyer, you might have to get one involved. Right. Don't don't fake it until you make it. In that case, you want to make sure you don't make a mistake. <laughs> That's right. And and, and and another great thing you have to remember is just don't get in the way of a good deal. A lot of times the business people will say, oh, God, here are the lawyers. And uh, it's because lawyers are famous for killing deals. And you don't want to be that lawyer unless it's in the best interest of the company. Yeah. So don't be so paranoid that you kill the deal. Good, good advice. Let's talk about specifically towards patent licensing and, and joint invention invention uh, oh, yeah. sorry, uh, agreements. But how should joint invention agreements or improvements be handled? This is a very important thing because it comes up in almost all of those agreements I mentioned before. Let's take a vendor supplier agreement. You have a vendor. They have a product. They've been developing it. They sell it to you. And during your use of the product with them, your employee talks with their employee and they jointly come up with an improvement. Well, who owns it? You really need to set that up ahead of time because if you don't, it's jointly owned by the two different companies. And if that happens, then you have issues of who controls patent prosecution. Uh, it could be very messy. So what you wanna do is better to have one party own the invention, grant the other party a license, for example, a field of use license or some other kind of a license, depending on what's in the best interest of the parties. Because if both parties own the invention, that's another thing. First of all, who controls the prosecution is a big issue. So you might say, okay, I've got the claims I want. I've got the protection I want, but the other side wants more. And how do yeah. you decide that? Do you file a second application or do you keep prosecuting the one that you're already getting? So you got to juggle that kind of stuff. So really one person should be in, one party should be in control. And like I said, I mentioned exclusive field of use license. That's very typical. Uh, my company owns the invention. I, my company controls the patent prosecution. Your company will get an exclusive field of use license in the field that you're interested in, whatever your interest is. For example, it could be the field of catalysis, petroleum processing, a lot of things, right. whatever's right for you. Okay. 
Tony, what does it mean to to not let an agreement to agree become an agreement? Oh, this comes up during negotiations. You got to be very careful that you haven't let preliminary negotiation documents become binding contracts by accident. So you want to make sure your negotiators are trained to not let that happen. They don't want to accidentally create an agreement. A summary of a negotiation signed by both parties might have just been thought as just a status report of where we are, but that status report could turn into a binding contract if you're not careful, especially if it's been signed by both parties, even mm-hmm. though important clauses are missing. For example, clauses that would have protected you. And also acting like an agreement, interestingly enough, can create an agreement. So you got to be careful about that too. And I have seen joint developments done based on an unsigned joint development agreement where everybody was following draft number four, but nobody ever got around to signing it. And eventually no one remembered which was the right draft. Would your advice be to uh, hold off on putting anything in writing until you're ready to make an agreement? If you can, but sometimes you need a record to bring back to your boss and both sides need to show where they are. And so if you need one, better not to do it, but if you do need one, probably have a massive disclaimer about that, that this has not been approved by either company. It is not a binding contract merely for informational purposes, that sort of thing, because I have seen it happen. The joint development before was kind of friendly because everybody was friendly. It worked out fine, but I've seen it where parties were involved in a negotiation, did what they call the heads of agreement, which is a very skeleton like summary of their, what they've been doing during the day. Unfortunately, the lawyer for one side had to go to the airport early and left the client there with the uh, other lawyer and the other party. And somehow the other side convinced the party that didn't have their lawyer with them to sign this heads of agreement. And the next day they get an email saying, thank you for uh, assigning your patent to us yesterday. And they had to go to court to get this thing unraveled. So you got to really be careful what you sign. And if your lawyer leaves the room, maybe you should go with him or her. <laughs> Good advice. So l- rule of thumb, acting like there's an agreement, it can, uh, can can actually create an agreement, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. That's, All right. Uh, that's classic. And that's also uh, a, a, a time where that'll happen a lot is when the agreement has expired, but the parties keep acting like the agreement's still in force. Well, how about agreements that include both patents and trademarks, uh, two ty- different types of intellectual property? What should what should one keep in mind when they're dealing with both of these types of intellectual property in an agreement? Well, first thing is just know that they are two different types of intellectual property. They have different lifespans, for example. A patent is typically 20 years from the earliest effective filing date for a U.S. utility patent. And trademarks are not like that. Trademarks can live forever. And that's because they're designed to protect the public as opposed to a patent, which is designed to protect the patent owner. So when you are doing this, just make sure you have provisions in there, knowing that this patent license is going to come to an end. And for the trademark license, you may want to have provisions in there to revisit it every few, maybe not few, but at least every five, 10 years to see if you want to get out of this agreement. Because otherwise this thing could be going for 100 years. Yeah. And the other important thing is uh, that in patents, it's not as important to have a clause where the patent owner maintains quality control. You may want it because you might want to avoid product liability issues, 
but on the trademark owner, it's uh, it's actually essential that the trademark owner have product uh, quality control, because if you license your trademark to somebody with no quality control provisions, so you don't have anything to do with ha what's happening as far as the, the quality of the product, that's called a naked license, and that will invalidate the registration. Yikes, yeah, so you got to make sure that those quality control provisions are in there. You got to protect your interests. Exactly. Okay. Another reason uh, not to get in over your head if you're not familiar with this, we got to make sure you got somebody in there that, that can throw some of these uh, provisions and stipulations in there that, uh, that can protect your client. Correct. Um, how about termination provisions? Do you have, do you have any advice on, on how uh, the termination provisions of an agreement should uh, be handled? Well, the first thing is make sure you have some. They are for always, not always, but very often forgotten. It's uh, typically, it's like a prenuptial agreement. Think of how many marriages have them and how many don't. Well, you could say the same thing for technology agreements. People don't realize that if things go south, they really need to have an orderly transition to terminate the, you know, basically terminate the agreement. And so you wanna have something in the license to have that orderly transition. And it should plan for unexpected but not unforeseeable events, for example, bankruptcy of either party or some other unforeseeable events for example, you may see you don't like where they're selling it. You may not like where they're sourcing uh, part of the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically sourcing ingredients or sourcing parts that are going into the licensed product that they're selling. It may make you look bad for your licensee to be bringing in parts from that certain place. And you want to have something in there to protect you from that. Yeah, I really like your metaphor, the prenuptial agreement. A lot of people, they get into these agreements together and everything's, you know, rainbows and sunshines at the beginning. And they don't realize that, you know, years down the road, once money's involved, certain issues could pop up and, and you don't know where your li loyalties lie until those issues come, come about. That's right. We're coming up about to the end of our, our time. I just got a couple more questions I wanted to get your advice on. So what, what is your advice after the deal's completed, the ink's drying on the paper? What's your advice for both sides? You want to make it work. You've got this nice deal. You've worked hard to get it. And what makes deals work is usually good communication by both sides making an effort. And this could be as far as, like I said, the royalties before, what's covered, what's not covered. Uh, you may have to provide technical support. And you want to make sure that there's no misunderstandings during administration of the agreement. So you have to, as I said before, designate somebody who's got to be responsible for administration and for keeping up on the important things, such as royalty payments. Yeah. And if you set up those efficient lines of communication, you're going to prevent those little problems and those little misunderstandings from becoming big ones. So I Excellent. can't emphasize enough. Designate All a right. contact person on each side and a backup. Excellent. Parties. Tony, this has been very uh, illuminating. Do you have any any final words of wisdom in, in handling technical agreements for our listeners? Well, you know, you realize deals come with risks, but they also come with opportunities. Now, although especially the first deal with a new partner can be difficult, it's something I mentioned above. You don't want to get in the way of a good deal. It's important that you help your client negotiated deal that's mutually beneficial for both parties and protects your client or protects you if you're the party and you want to be protected from the usual foreseeable things that can go wrong but 
you really don't want to be so paranoid trying to cover every possible contingency, every possible little thing that can go wrong, that your micromanaging of this deal is going to potentially scare off the other side and kill the deal. Because this could be the first of many great deals. So how do you how do you propose balancing uh, the trust that you should have in your opposing counsel, but also zealously representing your client? Well, you you and your client have to talk that over. What what is their risk tolerance? And a lot of times it depends on how big this deal is going to be. If it's a small deal, it's sort of a test deal with could be licensing technology from a university, for example. It's one of a hundred licenses you do a year of technology from a university to test it out. You might be more willing to be generous and less paranoid. If it's a bet the company case, you know, if you're if this deal is going to make or break the company or big, big bucks are involved, then you're going to have to be paranoid. <laughs> but that's just yeah. the way it is. So you got to juggle the value with the paranoia. Right. Excellent advice, Tony. We've had a fantastic conversation and I appreciate the you know, your time, but also the depth of knowledge you have. You have so much experience, and uh, I'm glad to have had this conversation with you. And our, our listeners, I, I, I hope they can reach out to you and, and if they have any follow-up questions on licensing and, and uh, technical agreements. Thank you, Jeremy. It's my pleasure, and glad to be here. Thanks, Tony. <laughs>